why don't we have giants of literature and Christian thought like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien anymore? And is there a way we can get them back? We discuss this and more with special guest Annie Crawford on this episode of The Overthinkers. Hello, thinking peoples, thinking people. Welcome to The Overthinkers, a home for people who love to have fun thinking deeply. I'm your host, Joseph Holmes, filmmaker, critic, filmmaker, self-appointed cultural apologist, and with me as always is my unapologetically cultured co-host. Nathan Clark's an actor, author, filmmaker, and lover of... <laughs> I think, again, I didn't think this through. Lover of <laughs> tale, Lover of stories? Yeah! Something in that. Alliteration, but I couldn't find any L words that said stories. Literature? Oh, well. <laughs> Next time. You are an inspiration to all of us, Nathan, with your improvisational abilities. Um, anyway, with us today is a very special guest. She is a cultural apologist and classical educator with a Master's of Arts in Cultural Apologetics from Houston Baptist University. She teaches apologetics and humanities courses and is a co-founder of the Society for Women of Letters. She has written for the Blythe Institute, American Thinker, Circe Institute, Worldview Bulletin, Classical Academic Press, and an Unexpected Journal, where she is a founding editor and writer. She is the astonishing, the approachable, the auspicious Annie Crawford. Ms. Crawford, welcome to the show. Wow, Joseph, thank you so much for that introduction. Thanks for having me. I'm real excited to talk about Lewis and Tolkien with y'all. Absolutely. We have found, as I was telling you earlier, that for whatever reason, you know, these guys are old. Uh, They are long gone, but their stories have lasted through for, for decades and decades and decades and still seem to have this really resonant effect. And our listeners, all you out there, talking to you and about you, um, really respond to episodes where we explore what it is about them that made them so substantially uh, uh, lasting and and effective. So I'm really excited to talk about this today. And I'm imagining that a few of our listeners are as well. So uh, we hear your downloads loud and clear. The numbers don't lie. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but yeah, so very excited to talk about this. Um, But uh, first, Nathan. If people do enjoy our discussion, which most likely it seems like they will, and want to engage more with topics like these and meet fellow overthinkers like themselves, where can they go? They can go to the overthinkersjournal.com where they can find about find out more about their hosts and everything we have going on. You can also send us all of your love and hate mail there. You can also go to the private group on Facebook where we have over 15,000 of you overthinkers getting into great discussions about all the fun stuff we talk about here and again, fair warning, it's mostly memes, but there's a lot of good discussion about these great intellectual memes. So head on over. We'd love to have you among our ranks. If you do enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving a review and sharing with a friend. It really does help us so very much. All right. Uh, ready to get started? Let's do it. All right. <laughs> so as we said, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien are two literary giants of the 20th century in both the Christian and non-Christian worlds. In an on-Christian world, they're celebrated for their contributions toward the fantasy genre, uh, according to, uh, essentially, yeah, according uh, to many sources, they invented the genre as we know it today. In the Christian world, they are celebrated as Christian thinkers who create worlds and stories infused with a Christian worldview during an age where most work of fiction were infused with a secular worldview. In the case of Lewis, he was capable of imagining worlds with a Christian imagination and fiction, as well as exploring and defending the Christian faith in non-Christian works and essays. 
And yet, these two men died decades ago in the last century. Since then, there's really been no unapologetically and theologically rich Christian writers who have impacted and shaped the intellectual and creative worlds of the Christian and non-Christian landscapes in a similar way. Even though new fantasy novels have come and gone and new intellectual thinkers have caught the world on fire, none of them has been as explicitly and thoughtfully Christian um, in the same way that have uh, caught the world on fire in ways these did. There's a reason that pastors, whenever they want to describe Christianity in a way that the faithful and seekers alike can understand, they still go back to the well of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, decades upon decades later. Ms. Gruffield, why is it that the impact of Tolkien and Lewis it hasn't really been people that have replaced them in the, or, you know, or maybe not replaced them, but have at least, you know, been able to pass the baton to in our modern era for the things that they did. Right. You know, there's a line from Jane Austen that comes to mind right now as you're speaking. Until I have your virtue, I will never have your happiness. It's a okay. line from Pride and Prejudice that Lizzie says about um, her sister, um, forgetting her name right now, Jane, 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 yes. you know, until I have your virtue, I'll never have your happiness. And I think it would be great to unpack throughout this podcast, you know, the, the different virtues Ooh. that go into Lewis and to Tolkien that then allowed them to bear such fruit, right? And so Ooh. until we take seriously the various virtues that compose these men, we won't understand the deep wells, you know, that allowed um, such great fruit to, to be born from. So we could start a couple of different places there, which as just an aside, you know, I was telling my daughters that we were, um, that I was going to be on the overthinkers podcast. And they're like, mom, that is perfect for you. You overthink everything. It's why you burn dinner half the time. So, you know, <laughs> my daughters are uh, excited to <laughs> listen in later as well. Um, so back to Tolkien and Lewis and the, you know, the virtues that go into the fruit that they've born. Um, we could go a couple different directions. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is their level of education. I mean, oh, Lewis no. and Tolkien were among the most well-educated men of their generation. One of Lewis's critics called him the best-read man in his whole generation, and um, and it's not just that they were well-educated for their generation but that their generation was in a sense, one of the last truly well-educated generations, right? So, and, uh, and, and that's, I think why we are struggling mm -hmm. to look around and see who, who, who are going to come next and fill those shoes. There has been really a steady decline in the level of education. And so if these were men that sat upon uh, the, at the top of a mountain, well, the mountain itself has been shrinking. So even those who sit uh, at the highest level of our education in 2023, they're not getting anything like the the education that Lewis and Tolkien had. I mean, Lewis read Homer and the in Greek in high school. You know, he was fluent in Greek and fluent in Latin. He uh, could read Plato in Greek. I mean, just the level of education, and we could unpack that, you know, in in more detail. But I think that's one of let's say the virtues. The, the really phenomenal intellectual virtue that was at work Ooh. underneath and behind um, in in their minds, in their imagination, in their body, in their soul, um, even in their imaginative work. Yeah, I, I think that's really great. And, and I do want to, uh, I'll say this in response to that, education 
is something that all of us should do. Whether you are yeah. sitting at home and you're like, well, I can't get a master's degree. So that does that mean I'll never be deeper? No, <laughs> absolutely not. And I love how you referenced Lewis's education. While it was obviously formal in his his, his um, time at Oxford and, and such, um, it was surrounded about his his own choice to be, like you said, the most well-read man um, in, in his time. Yeah. And so there's an ability for all of us as we're creating art, especially to the artists and writers out there, even if you don't have a higher education, but PhD, master's, or, or the money or the time to do that, that does not get you off the hook for having to educate yourself so you can become a better artist. And I love that you pointed out that these men were educated. And by that, um, the way I kind of think about it and the way I look at it, when I, when I see that these men and their stories affected, they were informed. And they were informed about a lot of different things that all affected the stories they were telling. And that's one of the things I, I, I see as I look at Lewis and Tolkien and how they affected the 20th century. We're really arguably the greatest storytellers of the 20th century. You know, since um, then you, you could argue that we've had other stories or worlds or myths that have had a cultural relevance uh, in a large, wide way. You could argue something like Harry Potter. I think that um, <laughs> yeah. is they, that Harry Potter often gets a an honor, honorable mention award <laughs> when it comes to, you know, the greatest. And um, you, you could argue uh, even Star Wars or or um, or Stan Lee and his, uh, yeah, the his Marvel superheroes. Yeah, yes. You could argue that these things, but I it's hard for me to, or you could even, I hesitate to say this, please no one write an email. You can even argue something like Twilight. That's kind of the last time that I, I remember, at least in my lifetime, um, a, a literary a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Very cultural phenomenon. Exactly. Um, and and I think that's actually something to look at, um, which is interesting. What, what even about Twilight uh, did that? And why is it happening so much less? And why is it happening now to things like, and I mean, no offense, Twilight's fun, but why is it happening to things that are so less substantive, yeah. like a Twilight, um, where it used to be the cultural things that, that culture wrapped around and connected with were so um, substantive and deep and, and meaty. Um, and so there's a few reasons why I think this might be happening, why we see less of these storytellers. And I don't think it's all um, just on, on the lack of good writers. I think that there's an audience component too. you know, mm -hmm. my mother, she had a philosophy of education that uh, of what she called appetites, that mm -hmm. you train appetites in children. So they actually will desire as they get older, more beautiful, more wonderful, more healthy things. Right. If you if you raise a child on every day, all they eat is McDonald's. They're never going to know. They're never going to have the appetite trained to actually desire a home cooked, full, healthy meal. And so, I think a lot of it, and we have, we haven't learned to. And again, this goes back to education: uh, educate or inform the appetites of the past, these past couple generations, on beautiful, um, uh, uh, depth filled stories. We haven't trained our appetites around that, and so we tend towards now demanding, you know, audience demanding is what typically gets made and funded and published. Mm -hmm. We demand shallower things that have easier access, yeah. that don't require as much from us, those kind of things. So I think there is a component here that's actually, quote, society's fault. We have not, society sure. has not done a good job. The family's not done a good job. What, what are, society is to blame. <laughs> we haven't done a good job at informing the appetites of our generations to actually desire better things. Um, yeah. I also think there's, you know, quickly there's, it's segregated audiences now. There used yeah. to be more of a monolithic audience of there could be stories that connect to mm -hmm. an entire society at once. Now we kind of get um, very, uh, it's like ordering a burger. I'll have this kind of burger and this kind of thing, yep. and that kind of, you know, with no onions and, and extra cheese, whatever it might be. And um, so we can very hyper 
uh, uh, demand specialize. Yeah, specialize. Yes, our entertainment. We see this in in, in, in movies and TV shows. Um, we see the same phenomenon. We don't see that one singular TV show. Yeah. Um, we see a lot of different TV shows that go to the specific tastes of specific people. So that's one element. And I, but I think for me, as I look, the real, the crux of this is, is why they were so influential and why we're not seeing this anymore. And this is kind of what I, I have formulated. All those things are, are relevant, but I also think it's not an accident that the two greatest, most influential, um, novelists, let's say, or storyteller, myth makers of the 20th century were Christian. And okay, so all of our atheist listeners, don't get mad at me. Uh, I'm totally <laughs> it, and you can write me all your letters. But I do think that the Christian artist, the Christian philosophy and ethos, is better set up to create and to create better art in more compelling stories. And I think that Joseph Campbell would agree with me. Um, I think that there's a lot of evidence to say that the Christ story, the the thing we grew up on to understand, is particularly connective to the human brain and heart. And so I think that these men, both having a strong Christian faith, influenced their work in such a great way. And, and they both wrote their faith into their work. It wasn't they were, you know, a Christian over here, but uh, they're going to write totally random stuff. No, their, their faith influenced how they wrote and what they wrote. And I think that because of that, it was especially connective to society as a whole. Not to mention they're both just good writers, but that's a whole other thing. And then I'd say one thing that we've lost in my reference of Marvel and Twilight and Hunger Games or all these kind of things, the last thing I say before I throw it to you, Joseph, is I think one thing that we've severed, and this is unfortunately, and I think we can blame um, kind of elitist mentalities about this, um, is we severed entertainment from depth. That if it's entertaining, it can't be full of depth and it's engrossing, it's engaging, it can't, uh, then it's probably not intelligent. And these are what they did is they created it and incredibly entertaining, engrossing, beautiful stories where you love the characters and what's going to happen next. You're turning the pages and they were filled with incredible um, uh, uh, depths and and serious uh, substantive substance. Um, and so unfortunately, I feel like now it's you can have really entertaining, i.e. Twilight, The Hunger Games, but it's not going to be all that depth filled or you can have something very depth filled. Go read a, you know, an academic paper on something, but it's not going to be all that entertaining. But and unfortunately, I feel like these things have been severed um, because of a few reasons in society. But okay. I, I think to get this back, to find a new Lewis and Tolkien, we actually have to have an appreciation for both something beautiful, aesthetically and entertaining, while allowing it to be death-filled as well. And so I think those are kind of my just on top reasons why I think they were so powerful and influential uh, in their storytelling and why we aren't seeing Lewis's and Tolkien's quite as much today. Joseph? Yeah, I think, I mean, you guys are, are really kind of going the direction I was would have gone with this. Um, and I think it, you hit, you know, the education angle, I think is super important. And, and Nathan, I think the sort of the splintering of society in general, I think is so important. You know, like if you look at the trends, I mean, you know, you, you, as you said, Annie, you would win, like they were, they were at a particular, you know, educated age. We're getting commonly, not everybody, obviously, but far more commonly people were learning Greek and learning, you know, these old languages and could read, old myths they were connected to not just the imagination of their day but the imaginations of generations upon generations past so again when you are connected to not only the intellectual thinkers but also the storytellers of generations past you just have more to pull from you know i mean you know the, the you know uh tolkien could pull the invisible ring from the you know plato's republic and you know and and uh, which you know and 
and even the whole idea of like, if you had power, would you, would you do something evil or good with it? You no, know, all these ideas, you know, you could pull from these imaginations and we are as society now, so cut off from our history of imagination. We just have left us to pull from. Um, there's also the, you know, just the demographic reality that, you know, they were both, I mean, first of all, they were both in, you know, in England and Christianity has been declining everywhere, you know, and, but especially in England, but like, you know, in, and in America, you know, you have these, these two twin problems of the education has been declining also like a really rampant, uh, the people, the, um, the group, the demographic of Christians that has declined least, uh, the evangelicals is also some of the most sort of anti-intellectual. And I mean that in, you know, in, um, an academic sense that like, they're less likely to pursue higher education, less likely to, you know, read, you know, um, read scholarly works and things like that. And so you're less likely to have somebody who, so it looks like you have Christians in general, educated people in general. And, you know, again, the, the fewer people like that, that happen, the less like you're going to get like a genius that pops up. That's, you know, it, it, within those circles. I mean, you know, they, that's why like, there's a lot of economists that get really excited whenever there's a larger population like when population grows they get really scared when population decreases because they're like the more the the more a population grows the more likely you're about to have a genius that's going to change the world that you know so and that is true with like other sub demographics too it's like okay if we're looking for a christian who has a is really highly intelligent and thoughtful and has a, a an abundant imagination um, it's like the fewer people that exist like that, the less likely you're going to have to get a, a genius that pops up in those areas. And the one, the last thing I'll bring up in this before throwing it back to you, Annie, is that they, um, is that our society is getting more splintered in terms of left brain and right brain thinking, you know, in general. So like, you know, again, in these two men that we're talking about, there was such a union of the imagination and the intellect of what, of storytelling. And just again, like, you know, C.S. Lewis, which this annoyed Tolkien a little bit, was like, I'm just going to put Santa Claus in my book because I think it's fun. <laughs> you know, it, you know <laughs> that feels good to me. I like it. And so I'm going to do it. Um, and with the ability to, you know, write mere Christianity and and, uh, and 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 both of these men, although C.S. Lewis did more like literal apologetics than Tolkien did, both of them were thoughtful and imaginative. And in our modern society, because we have the freedom in our postmodern era, you know, that's like ding, ding, ding. Which we said postmodernism again on the show. But yeah, can we get to drink? Exactly. Yes, you can do whatever you want on this show. Isn't it a little early to start drinking? Hey, five o'clock was twenty hours ago. Um, but is that people just choose to be in among people exactly like themselves, and so they're less likely you know, more imaginative and creative people are less likely to hang out with intellectuals and intellectuals are less likely to hang out with creative people. And so <laughs> having unions of left brain and right brain people, again, are just fewer and fewer. And so the law of large numbers, statistics, you're going to have fewer people. There's there's less of, like you said, grounds for creating, inculcating virtues and appetites for people, for, like you said, Annie, for people to exist like that. And for you, Nathan, for people to appreciate people like that. <laughs> Um, so is any, like, what, are there any things like that we, uh, missed or that you would want to develop further in this, uh, this area of the virtues that, that would not been inculcating? Yeah. Well, I first, I just want to respond to a couple of the fantastic things y'all 
y'all said. Um, you know, Nathan, I really appreciate that you pointed out uh, in terms of education, especially in, in our day, we're not just talking Wait. ivory tower. You know, I actually think some of the best education that's happening right now is sort of outside of the formal institutions, mm -hmm. right? And 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 that I even think that's part of Lewis and Tolkien's own genius, because I don't know if you know, they were part of getting English literature uh, developed as an actual major, because right. uh, until about their time, there wasn't English literature. It was considered popular reading that wasn't worthy of academic study. Wow. Right. And so Lewis and Tolkien. So, so the theme that's, you know, running through my mind as you both are speaking is the work that their genius as a bridge always standing between two worlds and then their ability from that uh, creative tension to then birth their their creative work so you know they stood with one foot in the elite academy able to read greek and latin and, and lewis wrote you know um philosophy books like the abolition of man the philosophers still debate today and then he, he wrote children's stories and he loved myth and he loved what was popular and and it's one of the things I love about them. I think, you know, Nathan, you you touched on one of my soapboxes that, you know, Horace, the Roman poet long ago, said that good art should both delight and instruct. It should Billy be Rome. deep and enjoyable. It should be something that is that that's offered to the, the as a common human inheritance, right? Our best stories, our deepest, richest stories should also be enjoyable. And the, you're right, this modern idea that that what's elite and profound awesome art, you know, like Marcel Duchamp's fountain is somehow elite art because it's so deep in what it says, but it's actually completely unenjoyable, right? Th that is a, a silly dichotomy that we really need to get over. And that I think Lewis and Tolkien very much uh, were bridge builders in that way, bringing English literature into the academy and bringing, you know, great uh, depth into their popular storytelling. So I think, you know, they were, they held a bridge between um, the high and the low between reason and the imagination, bringing them together. And then, you know, Nathan, what you also touched on is, you know, Christians um, maybe having a knack because we're some of the few people who still believe in real archetypes, that there it, are young. real eternal truths that resonate with the human heart. And, and, and that we're, you know, the other thing I noticed about Lewis, particularly so early in his life, he really wanted to be a great poet and he worked really hard i mean he wanted to be like the next brilliant poet and he just his poetry never took off and once he let go of that and then most of his work was birthed out of a need he looked at the world and saw you know people don't get this so let me help them get this he stopped obsessing about originality and he started caring about just communicating eternal truths well then all of a sudden his art took off and so i do think that's part of you know, maybe maybe why these Christians are some of our greatest storytellers, because they weren't as concerned about being, you know, the, the author as ego who's going to come up with a super original thing. You know, what they cared about was, was Lewis even says this, that a good author should not conceive of, you know, making up his own thing, but as portraying, being a sub-creator, as, as simply portraying God's art within mm -hmm. their own humble embodiment. Um and, you know, I love that you bring up Harry Potter because I love to teach Harry Potter. I see, you know, it's not as high of quality as Tolkien. Okay, I know. But it's it's kind of like a, an aftershock, right? So if Lewis mm -hmm. and Tolkien come with, with this earthquake of, of fantasy literature for a postmodern age, 
I see Harry Potter as, you know, she's taking from them as like a little aftershock. Yeah. Because she was a classicist. She was she's a liberal Christian. She's steeped in those uh archetypal traditions. And I think that's why her work, I do see it as the last major work that had resonance across a broad demographic. Because since then we really have started to fragment into our different niches uh and and genres. So um I'm not sure if that answers your question, Joseph, but I was really excited about, you know, the connections I've seen and what you guys were saying. No, that's, no, that's yeah. I, I, I think this is, um, this is so interesting because what, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, why they're so meaningful to me and to so many other people, these stories. And as I think about what I, what draws me to a story, be it, be it deep, be it fun, be it a, a Saturday afternoon, summertime movie, whatever it might be. Um, I'm typically drawn to story both one because I want to be entertained. I want the aesthetic joy of encountering something that's uh, pleasing, like you said. I, I that really resonate, I think, with both me and across um, society at whole are the ones that help us through through the through the lens and vehicle of beauty uh, of words of imagination, but help us make sense of reality. I know it's funny mm-hmm. to talk about um, these guys and how they wrote fantasy books, but their fantasy books helped people understand the reality they were living in. And they also have these components, you know, you mentioned Harry Potter uh, and why it's still, why it's kind of the last, um, as what we see, hugely effective uh, and still so, uh, and resonant piece of literature and storytelling that kind of goes across all these different societal lines. Is it still, like you you pointed out, has, it is informed by a base and a stage of, um, kind of these traditional things that coincide with the human psyche, which is we need redemption. We want hope. We want goodness. We want to believe there's a, there's a, there's a good and evil. We want to believe that there's going to be a ha- not a happy quote, happy ending, but a, um, a triumphant ending. We want to believe in redemption. And so these are the stories that gave us those things. And I think, you know, again, take another, take another sip of that tea, everybody. Um, postmodernism has kind of gotten rid of believing these uh, objective realities about the world and, and ourselves. And so we almost I've seen this this thing happen with a lot of artists where they, if they write a happy ending, they feel that their work is bad, that there's, you should somehow be ashamed of your movie, your book, your your whatever it might be. If there's a happy ending, it's not real art. And I think the, the we're looking at soul, you, Barry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> longs for and connects to um, these. I'm sorry, we haven't changed all of these these traditional story markers that we can find in scripture, we can find in the in the the psychology and philosophy of Christianity. Um, but th- that's an interesting concept too. But yeah. I think um, we're not seeing stories like that written anymore that connects to the experience and articulate reality in a way that gives us hope in a way that makes sense of it and makes sense of ourselves. Um, and yeah. and so that, that I think is one component that is that is sad to me. And I wish, and I, to be honest, I think the culture is ripe for a story that can help all of us during a time when there's pandemics and yeah. and divides and you know all these different terrible things going on. I think people are longing for something to help them articulate reality in a beautiful and imaginative way. And so that's this is not really a comment on why this is happening, but this is a company on why it needs to happen. That people are despairing. We see, you know, Joseph often references the the statistic that everything in the world, technically, according to the statistics, is getting better when it comes to racism or sexism or poverty or hunger, whatever it might be, everything is getting better in every inch of the world except mental health. People are experiencing spare anxiety and depression 
and ultimately even suicide at higher rates than ever before. And so I feel like the and that to me that that must come out of a place that the world doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. I don't make sense to me. My purpose isn't here. And so to me, we actually need these stories. You know, I went over, we don't have them, but now I'm talking about why do we need these now? Because I think this is one of the antidotes to helping that crisis that's currently happening and giving people hope, giving people a definition of who they are, who they were made to be and of the purpose they were made to live out. I think that's something we desperately need to see this kind of story come back. And so that's what I would love to see. But Joseph, I want to hear your thoughts on all of this and and why yeah. we need it. I, I, I want to jump. I want to jump off of that. I mean, like, first of all, I mean, this is like go going to go really down the overthinkers nerdy, nerdy rabbit hole for a minute. But like it, and you point out the idea that, you know, there's that these people believed in real archetypes. You know, they believed in real archetypes that that the stories they were telling said something about reality. Because, you know, um, C.S. Lewis in his uh, Experiment and Criticism book, one of the things he talked about is like the difference between, because the people already at the time were like, you know, criticizing, you know, fantasy for not being reality. And he was like, well, there's a difference between fantasy and lack of reality. Because you can have, you know, a fantasy story like Lord of the Rings, which still tells you, hey, power corrupts everyone all the time. And that's the way it is. Or you can have a romance novel that is technically more realistic and yet tells you a lie about the way the world works, about how to find love, the way that love is. And so, you know, that, but, and, and, and so he, that was his sort of defense of fantasy and like the truthfulness of fantasy. But, you know, it, uh, the West has sort of always been caught like since the 20th century between sort of like Freud and Carl Jung, you know, because Freud was like, everything that you believe, it's just a, a construct of your neuroses. It's just about you and what's the weird stuff going on in your head. Whereas Carl Jung was like, sure, it's going on in your head, but what's going on in your head was actually shaped by reality. So, you know, it, so like, so maybe, you know, you have this idea, maybe you have this idea of God and God is not real, as you say, but your idea of God was shaped by reality and that's real. And so your idea of God isn't that far off because whatever idea of God you have, it was shaped by a reality that is real and you do need to have a relationship with. And that it's so funny. We talk about the depression, you know, rates that we talk about often on the show, because, you know, uh, one thing C.S. Lewis and Tolkien did it had in common is they both went through World War One, you know, which was another era of nihilism. They both went in. They were both in the military, you know, fighting a war that basically destroyed psychologically and spiritually so much of the West, including particularly Europe. And it's it's like, oh, their heroes don't exist. The, everything is, you know, everything is terrible. You know, um, all that we hoped in was lost. And somehow they were able to construct war narratives, you know, where it's actually there is something beyond this. There is triumph over evil. I think it's not a coincidence that you're right. Her, you know, Harry Potter was sort of our last great myth you know, that of, um, of that type, um, because when it ended, what did we get after that? You know, we get Game of Thrones, which first of all is completely sort of nihilistic and two, doesn't have an ending. <laughs> you know, he still didn't know how to end it because again, endings mean catharsis and catharsis means making a statement about the world. This is so regardless whether you want to or not, you know, the, the, the new wave, uh, Italian, you know, filmmakers tried to make stories without points, and yet they really weren't able to because, as you point out on our uh, podcast, we did uh, together, live stream we did together um, with about the Barbie movie. Um, 
however you end your story, it says something. And that's the thing is we we have a society where we're not able to close the book and say, this is the end of, uh, uh, this is the spinal statement I'm making about reality because we think that there is no reality. Everything can be deconstructed and just, you know, fit into my own neuroses. So we're almost scared. Like if I make a statement, we're scared that it's it's going to be wrong. We're going to make a statement that's wrong and and we're not willing to take that leap that, you know, Tolkien and Lewis were willing to make because they believe the Bible told them the way the story ended. Um, I guess so. I, I So, uh, I yeah, I think that that's, that need is there. Again, we need a story like that. But again, we're in a society that makes it harder and harder for people, A, to exist who believe in this so can write stories like that, um, and B, for audience to accept it and not uh, and not reject it. Um, so I guess my question, Annie, would be, you know, what what do I mean? You know, what do you see as sort of the profound need of something like a Tolkien and Lewis today? And then how do we inculcate? How how do we recreate conditions that <laughs> um, that that they can exist and we can appreciate them when they come up? Yeah. I'm a little afraid I'm going to be the Eeyore. So. <laughs> Don't want to ruin everyone's good time. Do it. I'll, I'll play that role and then you guys, you guys be my antithesis. But, um, you know, Lewis said he had, he has so many great one-liners. Um, the highest does not stand without the lowest. And so that mm -hmm. is a theme, you know, we've already mentioned several times that, you know, we get the politicians we deserve. We kind of get the artists that we deserve. Um, Nathan, you talked, you know, really well about the, the fragmenting that happens and and then the inability to, yeah, just, and and so I think, that, and you also pointed out really well, this irony, this kind of tragic irony that at a moment when we most need storytellers to help us revive a sense of meaning and hope, uh, you know, when we most need that, we're most unable to produce it with power, right? So this kind of tragic moment that um, that we stand in. So I'm going to bring up Boethius as a model. Love that, it. Sorry, guys. No, no, this is red meat for us. <laughs> Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. Okay, great. That, that, that I think, you know, I think there's a parallel there. And this comes from Lewis... Um, himself and then a, a Lewis scholar, Jason Baxter, who sees Lewis as uh, a modern day Boethius. Okay, so let's just talk for a minute about who Boethius was and what he was doing and then how that might offer a parallel that then helps us see our own moment a little cool. better. So um, Boethius was writing at the end, the fall of the Roman Empire. He also was one of the most educated men of his day, fluent in Greek and Latin and uh, and, you know, um, one of the the best scholars, and he was um, also involved in politics. So what he, Bo Bo Boethius was really trying to do is, as the Roman Empire is collapsing, and the libraries are being burned, and literacy is being lost, and the West is being cut off from the East, which is retaining you know more civilization, Boethius was really trying to translate uh, all of the classics into Latin. You know, before it was too late, before he died, before there was no one left to do it. <laughs> And so he he wanted to translate Plato and Aristotle and um, you know Homer. Well, he got in political trouble, thrown in prison, 
And instead, we get his consolation of philosophy, which is his philosophical meditation on the tragedy of his life. And I think all that the West ended up with was one translation of Plato's Timaeus. As the, the you know the Roman world, those structures of society collapsed, and there and they were moved into the early Middle Ages as a darker period where literacy is lost, where the uh, learning is lost, and it takes a long time for that to be rebuilt. It takes you know from Boethius, who's your next major medieval? <clears throat> Who? I mean, it's it takes a, hundreds of years. You get um, Bede in England a couple hundred years later. It takes several centuries till you get um up to anselm and aquinas and um and so it takes so that's you know that's where i feel like a little eeyore i think it will take a long time right. if we live in such a moment okay so let's make the analogy there so um if lewis felt like a british boethius right. that the west is collapsing Whoa. in you know is a, it looks a little bit different. We haven't been invaded per se by German barbarians, but we've been invaded by something that's disintegrating and totally. fragmenting and literacy is being lost and our attention span is being broken. And um and and Lewis was a medievalist, so he very much in his um talk called De Descriptione Temporum, he calls himself a dinosaur. Brilliant. That he was one uh, one of the last men who had this, who was soaked and saturated in the ancient medieval way of understanding, in that imagination, in those languages, and that he was, like Boethius, desperately trying to translate that ancient wisdom, uh, that, that fundamental human inheritance before the collapse, before it was too late. Except Lewis was not translating from Greek to Latin, Lewis was trying to translate in terms of uh, imaginative form. He was trying to take the old truths and put them into the metaphors and genres of the modern world. This is why the trilogy uses sci-fi. You know, I can use sci-fi. I can use the metaphor of a spaceship to translate the wisdom, uh, the goodness, mm. truth, and beauty of the old world into imaginative forms that yeah. the new world can hear. And what I'm a little worried about, and I'd love for you guys to convince me otherwise, is is that we might be entering into some kind of dark age that takes a while. And we might just need to, I mean, that and might be what God has to show us or the universe for you atheists, you know, that that we, we're going to have to dig in and rebuild and have patience and rebuild our attention um, for a little while. But that doesn't mean we're without stories. You know, and this is why Lewis said, read old books. We have the old stories. Um, you know, we can revive the old fairy tales and oh. we have the old stories still and we can retell them and, and use them to help us build, rebuild our world again. Um, you know, that's my, that's my kind of bad news, good news. Um, we might just be at that kind of moment where it's going to take a while. Well, I think, uh, I hate to be an Eeyore along with you, but I'll, uh... <laughs> oh no. It's going to be up to me. Joseph, no. good luck. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right. I think it would be nice to believe that tomorrow everyone's going to read a story and it's going to um, uh, it's change the world and bring us back to something that we are rapidly moving away from. Um, goodness, uh, redemption, uh, whole, holistic stories that, that change us and give us hope. And you, Joseph, I'm really glad you brought up um, Indy. So you, you stole it right out of my mouth. I was literally going to say that because 
the one thing that makes these stories different, you know, because I was thinking, you know, we're talking about Harry Potter being the modern one. But I know that a lot of our listeners are like, hey, there is a modern myth that kind of got a lot well, of people excited, which was Game of Thrones. I'm so glad you brought up Game of yeah. Thrones. The problem is I saw all my friends get excited. I didn't watch it because I'm a Christian, um, <laughs> but uh, I saw friends get, you know, so excited. And and I know some of the, the story and um, it was interesting. As soon as the last episode, it was like dead silence. Eh, yeah, done. Look. There was no lasting impact that that yeah. really resonated. They enjoyed the story. And so I think people can write great stories, but what Christians specifically can do is write great endings. I think, um, and and that's something that I feel like we all really need. And you talked about that really, really well. And, and I think that's really uh, a big component right now. And and so to you, your point, Annie, about being an Eeyore, I don't think that's the Eeyore. I actually think it is hopeful. Oh. It just is not, um, it's kind of like how God does things where it's like, yeah, my kingdom will come eventually, but there's going to be a lot of hardship until it does. And so I think that uh, you're straight within the Christian um, ethic, uh, which is good uh, coming, but it will take a while. Yeah. Um, and isn't that, just real quick, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but isn't that what makes us love Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Yes. It's a long haul. And that's part of what gives it its power and its yeah. grandeur, right, is is the, is the long suffering of Frodo. And, and so, you know, I think part of that's reviving that heroic oh. sense in us. And we're going to revive that heroic sense by learning to incarnate it in our own lives mm-hmm. a little bit, to learn a little bit of the long suffering heroic journey, because that's what makes stories good. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah. think about the famous quote that Frodo talks with, when, and he's with Gandalf, in the minds of yeah. Moria, literally the darkness surrounded by monsters, there is no light at the end of the tunnel that they know of yet. And uh, I, I'm going to botch this quote, but essentially is that I don't want to live in in dark times. And Gandalf says, no one does, but no, no one wants to live in those dark times. But what you do in those dark times that, that essentially <laughs> is the quality of your story. And so to all the young writers out there and young myth makers and young artists, um, w- there's a few things I, I just want to say, and we'll kind of wrap up and go back to you, Eddie, and say to the writers, to the people out there, how can we start to be a part of this hopeful process? I will end eventually. But my, my two cents would be a couple things to the young writers. Uh, don't lose heart. Yes, it's a dark time, but you're like Frodo. And I love how you conceptualize that, Annie, that you are inside of a story telling stories, that that is your sword. That is your way to fight back against the darkness or the despair that is so present in this world. Don't give up. Write great stories. Educate yourself. Become someone who has an appetite to um, love goodness and, and, and put that into stories. It matters. And maybe it won't be um, uh, uh, as wide and big and accepted um, as Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or Narnia. Um, but it is important because a few people who read that will be encouraged and they'll go do it. And that's how you start something that will ultimately culminate into something much bigger. You, you light that candle. So we'll end up in a bonfire. So keep on writing beautiful stories. And also to all of you out there who, who are lovers of literature, maybe you're not writers or artists, um, learn to support those people. Go digging. Don't be satisfied with um, with uh, tales with bad endings, with shallowness. Don't be satisfied by what the world currently has to offer, which is not a whole lot when it comes to beautiful and whole and redemptive stories. Actively go out and search those people writing and making okay. things of substance. And by the way, I'm saying this to Christians too. I, I work in the in the Christian publishing industry, and I know so many amazingly talented writers and authors of depth who are fighting to just get a look from um, from a world world that uh that that says you know a christian world that, that says they care about these things go support the stories that matter even if it's whatever it might be buy those stories read those stories share those stories because they do matter 
and learn to in, in, engage with those because that will change you. It'll change the world ultimately. Uh, remember the importance of those stories. Don't be satisfied mm -hmm. um, by the, the, the tepid and even chaotic and meaninglessness uh, and the art that exists today. Um, but ultimately, I agree with you. This is not something to be scared of. It's not even Eeyore at all. We, you know, if you're walking the minds more through the dark, um, now you have a mission. Now you have a purpose. Go and write those stories. Go and find those stories. Go support those stories. We, there is a light to be had in this darkness. But Joseph, what would you say that we can do to usher this journey on? And then we'll give to Annie for the last word. I, I, you know, I totally agree. And I think I, I'm, I'm here is my added bit of sort of hope, which is that you know one one thing I always take is like I've I've done I've had this discussion with people because there's one of the things in my generation, you know, is constantly. And this is one of my hobby horses is talking about is that, you know, feeling like we live in a dystopian time. And I you know I've had these discussions because like, like they can said, you know, it's like, well, you know, for most objective metrics, it's not, we're just feeling worse. And the thing is, it's like, you know, if we do live in a dystopian time, the difference between our dystopian time and other dystopian times is that um, in previous dystopian times, it was a dystopia that we didn't have a choice to be in it or not. And in ours, we do. You know, at the time of Boethius, he was the only one really educated enough to do this. You know, in a modern day, it's actually phenomenally easier to have access to the imaginations of all the previous generations and to the the their thinking and their their beauty. And so you as an individual, if you want to tie your imagination and your intellectual history to the great heritage we have, you can do that. You know, again, you can go to podcasts, you can go to Kindle, you can actually become a voracious reader of the great ways of thinking and believing and feeling about the world. And so I would say to everyone, if you're a writer, make sure that you're connecting yourself to that so that we have more and more people who are connected to the imaginations of history. And if you're, again, a parent, making sure that you're doing that and passing that on to your kids. Like you said, Nathan, and this was something brilliant. If you're somebody who just likes to read and watch things and and do, then make it your mission to find the great ones and let other people know about them. Again, I do this again because I see a ridiculous amount of movies. My mission is to be like, here's a movie nobody has seen that's actually amazing. Let me help other people have seen it. Like, make that your mission if you're a lover of these things. And by doing that, you know, so many more people today have the ability to hold on to those good things and inculcate them in other people and in later generations so that, you know, you have, you do actually are able to recreate from the ground up the conditions for people to both create and appreciate um, great storytelling. So yeah, it's not going to happen tomorrow, um, but I think it actually could happen faster than it has before because the access has become democratized in a way that it never has before. So you listeners... You actually can do it, uh, almost whoever you are. If you're able to listen to a podcast like this, you can probably do that. So that really is a, a tangible mission that you can have. Um, what, el what else would you say, Andy, before we uh, wrap up? Give us some hope. <laughs> <laughs> Action steps. Well, gosh, I love what you guys have already said. And I think maybe to take that phrase, the highest doesn't stand without the lowest, right. and, and draw out its positive aspect, which is what both of you are touching on, is that, you know, a Lewis or a Tolkien, in our modern imagination, we tend to think of the lone genius. You know, this comes mm. from romanticism and Byron and, 
you know, that they somehow are the freak of nature that 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 pops up randomly. And then it's like everyone wants to win the lottery, right? That that I'm going to be the freak loan genius. And I just don't, you know, I just don't think that's the way it works. <laughs> Mozart even lived within a very musical context. Again, he, he was a gifted person at a certain moment, right? And so, and that says, you know, Lewis and Tolkien didn't just pop up randomly as freak genius geniuses. They they really were um, part, as I said, part of that, um, the height of a particular moment that they were in. And I think what this means is that that, that highest, Lewis and Tolkien, they don't stand without all the things that went before uh-huh. them, all the smaller stories. You know, Tolkien talks about in his On Fairy Stories, the kind of pot or cauldron of storytelling, yeah. you know, and that all the different little stories, unknown stories, and Beowulf and great stories, but they all uh, percolated and were part of what was a, what gave Tolkien his vision. And so even if we stand it at a moment, you know, or I'm not going to be a great writer, I'm not a creative writer, but in we can be part of the, the like, I love how you said, tell your stories, um, support storytelling, be part of rebuilding a, a, a culture that can sustain the great stories again. And, and there's a genuine participation in that. Um, that's meaningful. And I think that's also part of the the deep meaning of Lord of the Rings that we love, right? So the hobbits, they're a little people. And that also applies to the fact that the little things we do, the little stories we tell, the little stories we live are part of that victory over, you know, over the, the great evil, the, the great joy that is able to come because of the faithfulness of the little people. And so even if, you know, we're in a moment where we're rebuilding we can really feel like our role matters. Our role Amen. matters. Lewis and Tolkien wouldn't have come without um, all those little little faithfulnesses that came came before. I love Amen. that. Had a perfect place to um, wrap this up. We ended on what we said, which is a we went through the darkness to Eeyore, and we ended up with there is there's a light, there's a hope of redemption. So we told a story in this podcast, and I think it's one for the ages, guys. <laughs> it's the one that you're a part of, uh, you <laughs> listeners. Um, so awesome. Well, um, so we, now we're going to move on to our blessings and curses segment where we take a work of art, media, or resource that, uh, we, uh, want to recommend, i.e. bless or to diss, i.e. curse. So, um, any, do you have, uh, any blesses and or curses or, um, would you like to us to, uh, go first to, to lay the groundwork or do you want to jump right in? Why don't you guys go first? I'll let I'll let my ideas percolate in the stew of story. The for cauldron a of yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> cool, cool. Nathan, I mine more or less ready today. Um, oh. Going to do exactly what I said, and I'm going to. Um, I, I read this book. I I go on these Amazon hunts where I just I'm I'm looking for something particular. It's a little ineffable, and I'm trying to to do you know, find exactly what I'm looking for. And I was, and this was years ago. I was in like a, I had read the great divorce for uh, the second time. And I was like, man, I really wish there was something new like that. The great divorce is, is mm-hmm. by C.S. where he kind of uses myth-making to talk about the afterlife and morality, all these different things. And so I wanted something like that. I was at a hankering. Mm-hmm. And she was like, is there any kind of book being written now that's told in that kind of way that's engaging, but talking about these deep philosophical theological things. And, and so I won this hunt. And there's not many. I'm going to say there's really not many, especially modern. And, you know, one of the things I I, I want to mention about the efficacy of, of Tolkien and Lewis on, on their cultures, uh, 
we talked about they had timeless truths wrapped up in a language of their current moment. Um, so it wasn't they were inventing new truths. They were just articulating them in in the world the moment they knew. And so I found this this book and I'm going to get that. I'm going to make sure I get the author because I want to support do exactly what we said. Find these authors and support the people who are doing this. Um, this book is really hard to find and you probably won't be able to find it. And if you do, um, good luck getting a copy. But I got a copy and it's called Newtown by Harry Blamires. Um, And I could be totally botching that last name. Um, it's just a, a little parable novel, but it, it it's very much in the vein uh, and inspiration. He even says this of um, uh, Lewis and talking about theology and what it means. And it, and I just want to shout him out and say, I'm so glad someone's trying something unique and different that's in the style mm. and and inspiration of these books that were um, effective. And it might not be popular, it might not be a bestseller now, but it is something worth reading. So I, I do want to shout out Newtown. I'm also going to make a big claim here and a bless and say, while this has disappeared, you know, what we're talking about today, these kind of myths and stories of hope and and depth and, and entertainment and joy, well, in, in large part, they have disappeared um, from culture at wide. I think, uh, especially particularly in the literary world, I think they still do. Those themes still live in another world. And everyone's going to get mad at me when I say this, that is oh. still seen things that have depth entertainment, half, uh, redemptive, good, holistic endings, um, and a worthy story to go along that shows us light versus dark and and to engage with those kind of things. And I think right now, the only place that's really doing that regularly is video games. Yeah, All right? there it is. We yeah. get mad. Um, I know this is not the same as reading <laughs> literature. I do both. Don't worry. Um, but I, I will say one of the things that made me remember I love stories and gave me that feeling that I had when I first read um, Tolkien. And again, yeah, but- this game borrows a lot from Tolkien. So don't get me wrong. Um, but it, it's very open about it. But they, it borrowed all the best things in the best ways. And it was something that connected with tens of millions of, of people. And we just kind of totally ignore it, it, its significance on culture. Um, and, and I understand. I understand, you know, video games aren't for everyone. But there's a game called Skyrim, which really um, kind oh, of yeah. rejuvenated that that myth uh, that tells a truth that that's um, that has ultimately heading towards a beautiful ending. And so I will highly recommend if you want that hit again of great story and myth making, it's not going to be the same. I'm not arguing it's the same as Tolkien, but I think that there's a lot to be found right now. Unfortunately, I feel like sometimes the only place to find these themes uh, in video games and particularly I really enjoyed Skyrim. They remade it a while ago and so you might enjoy the updated graphics. Um, so those are my blesses, uh, a book and a video game. Um, and then my curse is I read a book a while ago and, and I, and I, and I hate cursing any author, who puts it out there, but they, uh, sold millions and millions of copies. So I think I'm, I'm they're fine. Think. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't care what I say. Um, it's every heart is a doorway. I believe it's a series. I read one of the books and, um, I think I've, I've cursed it maybe before in the show years ago. Um, but it was kind of promised as this is going to be the new myth, the new, uh, awesome series that's going to capture your art and mind. It didn't. I mean, it's still enough. Uh, but uh, so I, I engaged. I read it. A great concept. Um, it's like a school where all the different uh, the kids from different fantasy novels go to school. And it's like, oh, I got ushered into a world through a wardrobe. Well, I was taken into one because, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a great concept. And what happened with it, um, uh, I'll tell you why I'm Chris in a minute. But what happened with it, like many of the stories in today, terrible ending because it wasn't allowed to have a hopeful or, or um classical ending 
Uh, so it was not uh, in any which way uh, satisfactory or I didn't feel full afterwards and happy and joyful. I was kind of like, what? And so one, uh, I did not enjoy the ending. Two, there's a moment in the book where they're talking to professors where they literally by name um, take a swipe at C.S. Lewis and Narnia and call it stupid and old fashioned. And I'm like, listen, uh, I, I get it. You're trying to do something new, but maybe don't take a swipe at the most beloved, most successful uh, fantasy series, <laughs> higher 20th century, because then we're going to be comparing your books and deciding better. And that's I just don't feel like that's a great exercise to do. And it is also kind of taking the swipe at the shoulders you're standing on, uh, more or less. And so um, for that reason, just taking a swipe at Narnia without being better than Narnia um, or nearly as good, I, I, I do have to give that one. I, if you're I gonna do. if if you're gonna take a shot at the king, best not miss. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's uh, awesome. <laughs> that's that's what I would say about that. Um, I mean, it, one of the it's uh, the first Sherlock Holmes novel story where he's introduced. Um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has the audacity to have Sherlock Holmes criticize the most famous detective character at the time, who was created by Edgar Allan Poe. And the thing it's, is. He got away with it because he created Sherlock Holmes. So, you know, I, I guess I will say, you know, you know, uh, be sure you're creating Sherlock Holmes if you are are, are taking a swipe at the uh, better uh, at, at, at the the shoulders you're standing on. Um, so, OK, cool. That's awesome. Those are all great. Um, so I'm I'm going to uh, first I'm going to curse. I'm with well, curse. Yeah. First, I'm going to bless um, uh, something I, I blessed last time, but it's just really so relevant. If you haven't watched that episode, you watch this one. Want you to know that um, this is out there. Um, there's the the what was it? Uh, Faith. It, it's a documentary. It's on YouTube called Faith and Imagination: The Fantasy Makers. And really, the whole thing is just tracing George MacDonald, C.S. Lewis, and Tolkien and how they um, created the fantasy world they lived in and influenced each other and uh, revived sort of fantasy literature um, in their day. And so, if you are interested in this topic and you haven't heard of this, it's free on YouTube. You will really be learn a lot and be inspired. Um, the other thing I'll do is I recommend, of course, we've uh, uh, um, done this on the show before, but um, recommend the book The Bandersnatch because another thing, of course, that that's a book that's about how Slytherin and Tolkien had a writer's group together. So again, like if you're asking like what conditions make for um, yeah. uh, creating people like that, it's people who are like that, be able to find community together, make each other better. I mean, you know, the stories that you hear about how, you know, C.S. Lewis told Tolkien, nobody cares about the intricacies of hobbits as much as you do. So do that 30% of the book and the rest be a rousing adventure story. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, and then Tolkien, you know, it, you know, you getting C.S. Lewis to just like, you know, it, it, prodding him as well in his way and the ways they all did that together. So like, so if you want to capture a vision for like, oh, what this looks like in our day, this is another component of it that's really inspiring. And the book does a great job of talking about that and talking about what you talked about, Annie, about explicitly undermining the lone genius myth because the uh, talks and yeah. about the there is. Yes, there are incredible geniuses that all exist in a context um, and come out of a context. Um, do that is just start a podcast, guys. If you I want know. To <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Is that, you know, <laughs> I didn't know that's what we were doing. Um, but then the third part of this is I'm going to bless um I'm going to bless an institution, uh, which is um the the rabbit room. And 
Um, that is, and again, you know, they 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 haven't you know created maybe you know a, a a thing yet like Narnia or Lord of the Rings, but they are a group of you know uh, artists and intellectuals and Christians who are trying to create conditions. They're creating a, it's an institution that's a, it's a around supporting um, thoughtful Christian artists. And so they're trying to create an environment that where support, you know, um, that can happen. And I say good for them. That's fantastic. Um, it's co-founded and by in, and to that ends. They have produced things like the Green yes. Ember and yes. the Wing Feathers, which people really, really love. Yes. And they get that feeling again that they had when reading Lewis and Tolkien. Right, exactly. So, you know, Andrew Peterson it's co-founded by Andrew Peterson, who wrote the Wing Feather series. And so they're they're producing things that are really great um, in that way. I haven't read the Wing Feather series, so I can't like make that my bless, you know, but um, I, I'm blessing their project, which is like that's and I think that, hey, more people, you know, should either be involved in their what they're doing or create their own thing to do that. That's the kind of stuff that's going to be able to help us to inculcate that again. So I'm going to bless uh, the rabbit room. Um, their their new uh, I'll also say their their um their new uh, adaptation of a hiding place. Um was also excellent so when that comes out on dvd it's a play that they made a movie of so that comes out on dvd people check that out i wrote a review of it for religion unplugged um curse i'm gonna go a bit lazy uh today um but uh also true uh as i'm going to curse rings of power again uh <laughs> just because that was I, I i don't think i've ever seen such an obvious contrast between the abilities of a Tolkien and the abilities of modern storytelling, um, mm. where it it where they tr took the characters and the story and the world, and you just saw there was nothing under the surface that had even remotely the level of of depth um, uh, and thoughtfulness behind it. It was just like, oh, this is how shallow we are in our modern yeah. world. That. Uh, this is the best we can do when we're trying to imitate, um, imitate those people, their imaginations. So that that to me was what I learned from that. And so that I definitely, uh, definitely is landing on the curse uh, side of that. Um, so yeah. I know we have fans who like it and 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 you're you're allowed to be wrong. Uh, and oh. they have to see it. <laughs> um, um, uh, but anyway, yes. Okay. So, uh, so Annie, well, what would you uh, contribute to uh, blessing and cursing uh, on uh, our show today. Yeah. All right. I love this, guys. This is really fun. And uh, yeah, I think the the Rings of Power is a great illustration of if you if you don't really believe what Tolkien believed, well, you don't believe in those eternal truths, you're not going to yeah. be able to offer the vision and the power that he offered. Yes. Right. Even if yep. you've got all the money to do all the CGI. <laughs> right. Oh, um, Amazon. Jeez. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So and then Nathan, I love I want to bless your blessing of video games because, mm. you know, in experiment and criticism, Lewis said you don't teach someone to love higher things by denigrating the things he does love. Right. Ooh. Actually, what you do is you start with what people already love. You find where the loves are alive and you fan them into flame and you start to say, you know what you like about video games? Let's let's look at the good there. The fact that this is a place where there can still be happy endings. I think that's genius because in a video game, you well, one, what are part of part of the break in art between the high and the low is a break in participation. 
the common mm. person can't participate in that high art. It's too erudite and, and it's a loss of participation. Well, games are our way that are recovering participation wow. in the story. And as we participate in the story, those eternal resonances written on our heart come out. I don't want to play a tragic, nihilistic game every time I sit down. You know, a lot of people are sitting down to play games because they need... They need to de-stress. They need, you know, and and so the fact that it's participatory is bringing out something fundamental in us, our need for our efforts to bear fruit in a happy ending. And so I just bless your blessing of video games because I think that's a way that we're that we're going to be able to recover um, some of that eternal truth and participation in good stories. So that and then I'm going to be super audacious. Is that the I don't know why I'm second guessing myself right now. And I'm going to bless and curse things I've never seen or read. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Partly because it's not out. So I am, do I bless or curse first? I'm going to curse first and end strong. So I'm going to curse the new Snow White movie. You know, I'm just going to jump on that bandwagon and curse (laughs) the new Snow Brown movie or whatever. Um, And, you know, I think diversity is great. But in this particular case, it's more about the fact that they are deconstructing the fundamental archetype of what the fairy tale is because frank you know so you'll see these interviews and and you know you know snow white and the princess needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle well that is just completely destructing and destroying the archetypal meaning of what these stories are all about which is that the human we need a savior that's what they're about that we need that we are asleep dead fallen we we are in over our heads and we need a divine loving grace from the outside. Yeah. And that's what those archetypal stories are about. And so when we think we're being supporting women and being feminist and going to give them a, a story where the woman doesn't need a prince, you, you're, you're archetypally, symbolically saying we don't need God. Bing. And Bing. and that is to cut ourselves off from the very grace that we need. So I curse the news. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's an excellent point you make, which is I'm that. Back on, and, and bless it. Don't worry. Yeah, that's it. We'll give you an opportunity when it comes out. Uh, yeah, exactly. okay. But, but I'll say that you make an excellent point. The the there, in order to support women, they're saying like, you know, she doesn't need a prince. But the actual problem is, we all need a prince. It's the reverse. Yeah. We should be that's looking right. the the reverse. We all need a savior. It's that, um, and they're missing that. Um, yeah, I never always right. wondered why. But it's like, oh, you want to adapt this because it has something that resonates with people. Let's take out everything that resonates with people. Right. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. All right, good. Can make now, a lot of money, I'm for sure. Yeah. All right, I'll, I'll bless. Then what I want to bless is um, Jonathan Pajot over at Symbolic World. He, he is, he just did a Kickstarter for Snow White. He's going to retell the the story of Snow White in a way that I think, you know, Echoing Lewis is going to take the old story, the resonance of the old story, and honor them, but give them some kind of modern embodiment. And on his Kickstarter for yeah, Jonathan Pajot's Symbolic World, Snow White. And again, this is a way you could support artists. Mm-hmm. I think the Kickstarter's closed. I don't know how it works at this point. I'm sure it will be for sale open at some point. But, you know, just incredible artwork. I mean, because yeah. just mm-hmm. each panel in the story is just first rate visual artwork yep. and i know that he's also doing some things uh with the story to thread in you know new twists and new mm-hmm. plots so i haven't read it but you know i 
looking at the Kickstarter, looking at the art, looking at the vision, it looks like, you know, like Rabbit Room, one of yep. those places that that really are building some momentum to offer some high yeah. high quality art. So well, there's, but I haven't read it and yeah. I haven't we'll seen see. it. We'll bring you back on when both the Snow Whites are out and then you can like see, do you want to reaffirm your blessings and curses? No, I have to I'll, eat humble pie, right? Exactly, and- <laughs> yes. No, uh, but I'll, no, I'll say, you know, again, like that's another thing. Like if you're, if maybe Rabbit Room isn't your taste, it's like, you know, there are people like Jonathan Pajot, who's another person who's like, you know, trying to like, you know, tie together the old imagination with the new. And so that's, you know, yeah. There are places like the Overthinkers. So yeah, uh, you could give us money. You know, yeah. too. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so anyway, well, thank you so much, Andy. This has been a fantastic discussion. I've had so much fun. You're an amazing guest. Um, if people, um, and I don't know why they wouldn't, you know, are really excited about to hear more from you, um, where can people find your work and what you do uh, to, to hear or watch uh, or read more of uh, your thoughts and your work? Yeah, thanks, Joseph. The best place is to go to my website, anniecrawford.net, where I have a page that shows all that I've written, and uh, I'm always updating with speaking events and some links to some of those. And and then at Facebook is the place I'm most active on social media. Mm-hmm. It's Annie Brownell Crawford over at Facebook. Fantastic. Awesome. And Nathan, if people uh, want to uh, get in touch with you or get in touch with uh, Overthinkers and check, give us their love or hate mail and stuff like that, uh, where can they go? Uh, if they want to give us all their love and hate mail, definitely head over to the overthinkersjournal.com and uh, join our online Facebook private group. We would love to have you sharing one of those cool, fun intellectual memes. Um, <laughs> if you do want to get in touch with me, go to nathanclarkson.me. I'm also going to plug my book, The Way of Kings, which talks about a lot of the stuff um, today in your own life, how to adopt your own life as a story um, and live that out uh, in a, a meaningful um, way. So check out my book, The Way of Kings, um, and uh, connect with me on any of the socials. Just search my name, Nathan Clarkson. You can connect with me on any of the socials as well. Uh, You can also go to my website, josephholmstudios.com. Also, uh, of course, if you want to see more of my humble attempts to help make the stories we're telling better, you can go to my uh, work at religionunplugged.com, where I have uh, written a lot of uh, film criticism, uh, a lot of faith-based films, and a lot of secular films from a faith-based lens. Um, you can also, I am, if you would like personal help in uh, writing film uh, from a film critic's perspective, you can go to my super prof um, uh, the place that just goes josephholmsuperprof.com and I can uh, give you private coaching on how to make a, uh, write a screenplay that film critics will actually like. Um, so uh, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to us. Um, thank you so much for joining Annie and thank you all so much for uh, joining us today, audience. And remember, if it's worth thinking about, it's worth overthinking about.